my experience is that poly people seem to have a lot less regret than other people because they have just kind of gone for it and done whatever they wanted. Uh, you know, uh, people who are not poly have more of a tendency to say, well, I, you know, I was too, I cared too much about what other people thought of me and I did what society expected of me rather than what I actually wanted to do. Whereas poly people tend to feel like they really did pursue the things they wanted to do in life. However, almost every poly person my age or older that I talked to had at least some regrets about, excuse my language, not knowing what the fuck they were doing. <laughs> <laughs> when they first started being polyamorous. Oh, uh, I have that regret. Oh, I've got tons of those oh, regrets already, yeah. Welcome to the Multi-Amory Podcast. I'm Jace. I'm Emily. And I'm Dedeker. We believe in looking to the future of relationships, not maintaining the status quo of the past. So whether you're monogamous, polyamorous, swinging, casually dating, or if you just do relationships differently, we see you and we're here for you. On this episode of the Multi-Amory Podcast, we are joined by one of our favorite authors, Kathy Labriola, to talk about her new book, Polyamorous Elders, Aging in Open Relationships. The topic of what polyamory and other non-traditional relationships look like later in life is something that has been requested of us to cover on this show many times. Things like, how does it change as we get older? What's more challenging as you get older? What advantages might we have as we get older? What gets easier? Uh, you know, what are some things that we might not think about? And then also, how can I be a better person in relationships of any kind to people in my life who are older and are polyamorous or in open relationships? So we're incredibly excited to share Kathy's new book with all of you today. For those of you that don't know, Kathy Labriola is a nurse, counselor, and hypnotherapist in private practice in Berkeley, California. Her mission is providing affordable mental health services to alternative communities. And she's a card-carrying, bisexual, and polyamorist for 40 years, is a political activist and community organizer, and the author of four fantastic books on consensually non-monogamous relationships, which are Love in Abundance, The Jealousy Workbook, The Polyamory Breakup Book, and this newest book now, Polyamorous Elders. So, Kathy, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for having me. And I realized I must have sent you an outdated bio because I actually have been a card-carrying bisexual and polyamorous for 50 years. And uh, Oh, wow. Okay. Oh, wow. Oh, another decade. Put another decade on the board. <laughs> exactly. That's, uh, yes, dementia setting in. I can't remember how many years I've been doing this. So, Kathy, this book on polyamorous elders. Now, I think that culturally we have a little bit of this assumption right now that polyamory is something that was invented by young millennials maybe about 20 years ago or so. Um, so I'm assuming maybe that's part of what inspired you to pull this project together. But I'd love to hear from you. What was the seed of this book? How did this all begin? It's. Partly, as you described, that uh, people do seem to have the belief that this was something that polyamory is a very recent thing. And, you know, people could be forgiven for thinking that because in the media, it seems like the only thing I see is very glamorous, very young, very white people uh, in the media who have been being polyamorous for the last six months or two years or something. And uh, mm -hmm. that seems like it mm -hmm. makes it sound like it's just been invented very recently and that only you know young people who look like supermodels and are very white are doing that uh, that's not my uh demographic at all uh, it's not the demographic of my clients or the people that i see in the polyamorous community in the san francisco bay area where i live much more diversity in terms of uh, age race ethnicity etc that at the fact that I have not been able to find anything at all that's really been written about this subject. And my clients are asking me all the time about, well, what, what happens with old people when they have been polyamorous a long time or, you know, what are their relationships like? And I can certainly 
tell them a lot about it because of all the people I know in that demographic. But uh, you know, there's nothing when people say, well, what could I read about this? There really isn't anything. So it's kind of had to be invented. Yeah. So speaking of inventing that, I would definitely love to hear just for the sake of our listeners, um, I would love for you to give maybe a little bit of some highlights or some teasers of what, like, what is the scope of this book? Because it could go in many directions, right? It could just be oh, this is just about, you know, aging when you've already been polyamorous for 20 years, or this is about aging and, you know, end of life care with your polycule, or this is about you just discovered you're polyamorous in your 60s. And now what do you do? Right. And so can you give our listeners a sense of like, what are all the different places that you go in this book? Sure. Uh, you know, the, the first part of the book is just trying to understand like, what is the current experience of polyamorous elders like what are their everyday lives like what are their relationships like and how are those relationships evolving as they age uh but uh that was just really the beginning of, of what i was trying to understand and study and write about uh there is also a lot about well are are polyamorous elders better at polyamory than younger mm. people uh or not uh or they uh, are they are people more likely to become polyamorous as they get older are they more likely to be revert to being monogamous as they get older uh, and uh it's do things like jealousy and compersion change as people get older uh and how do people manage as they uh start to experience health problems and disabilities that question particularly interested me because of uh, the fact that so many uh, polyamorous people of my age group, I'm 68, uh, and people of my age group, most of us were rejected by our families because of our polyamorous relationships. And so uh, many of us have none or very uh, distant relationships with parents, siblings, and you know nieces, nephews, other relatives, and many polyamorous uh, elders have been rejected by their adult children, oh, wow. uh, and have, uh, don't have as much of a relationship with their adult children and grandchildren, uh, as, uh, other elders do. So much more of a question in my mind in writing the book of well, what is happening with elders, uh, who are maybe don't have family support to call on when they are in their elder years when you'd expect they might need it. Right when I was writing the book, uh, was at the very beginning of the COVID pandemic, and that was having a huge impact on all, everyone, <laughs> but, uh, but polyamorous elders, particularly, uh, you know, isolating impact and particularly scary in terms of, you know, the likelihood of, of death if they, if we catch it. So, uh, that was having a big impact on poly relationships in general, but elders particularly. So. I wrote about uh, quite a bit about that in the book. Yeah, that makes sense. And so before we got started, something else I wanted to address is that you were mentioning that other shows that you've reached out to or that you've talked to have kind of said, mm, I don't think my audience would be into a book about old people. Like that's, that's not for us. And, you know, it, first of all, I think I, I like to think that our audience is a little bit more um, aware than that of the fact that all of us get old. And so this is something that even if it isn't relevant to you yet, it will be. And so these kinds of resources are great. Um, but then also, I'm just curious what, what that reaction has been like in terms of to, to the idea of you writing this book at all. Are people scandalized by it? Are they into it? Do they feel like it's not interesting, but then they're surprised at how many things apply to them? Just what, what's that been like so far for you? Well, yeah, I have certainly heard from some people that once they read a few chapters of it, they thought, well, hell, well, this is kind of interesting after all. You know, there's something, some fascinating information here. Uh, and of particularly, uh, the people that seem most surprised and actually, but then find it interesting and they didn't expect to, uh, are younger poly people who are also queer. Uh, because there is so much of a parallel, uh, amongst, uh, elder queer people and poly elders in terms of our being estranged from our biological families and, uh, not having that kind of family support to count on and uh, being ostracized from society in the same way that queer people who are 
our elders particularly have experienced all their lives. Uh, and in terms of our, uh, needing to potentially move into assisted living or some kind of senior housing, uh, queer people have had to build their own assisted living because they were so, uh, uncomfortable and so stigmatized in the, uh, existing senior housing. Uh, and it's like poly elders may have to do the same. Right. Hmm. I wanted, yeah, actually, like, since we're talking about that, is it okay if we just kind of go on a tangent on that? Because I, I think people would be curious about thinking about that, right? Because I think on the one hand, one of the benefits of non-monogamy and especially particular practices or styles of non-monogamy is that it seems like a fantastic way to share the responsibilities of caring for each other, right? Of having multiple people able to care for each other. We're not just relying on the kids, the grandkids, or things like that. And so I am curious about how you've seen that go in practice for people. And also, I mean, I know it sounds like you're kind of making a prediction that non-monogamous folks are going to have to invent their own retirement communities or have to carve out that space. You know, is this a system where people are already being discriminated against that you know of? Well, I'll answer the last question first, which is, sure. uh, and yeah, the answer is yes. Uh, because uh, I spoke to quite a few uh, poly elders who had already, they acknowledged that they had already postponed and delayed far too long in moving into some form of senior housing because they knew they weren't really safe in their homes mm. and did not have access to the care they needed. But yet they were terrified of moving into any kind of senior housing because they were fearful of stigma and discrimination. And in fact, when they have called or visited these places and tried to uh, find out if what was going to happen to them if they tried to move in there. They have uh, faced discrimination right out of the gate because uh, most of these places will not allow more than two people to move mm. into an apartment. And some of that is uh, clearly out of their control. There's a legality involved of, uh, you know, the, the government has regulations and the goal is to protect uh, seniors from overcrowding. Mm. And so a certain amount of square footage is required, you know, to have more than one person in living in an apartment and to have more than two people. Uh, but uh, a lot of the places that I called and a lot of places that people I interviewed had visited, the apartments were so big, they were much bigger than their actual houses that they lived in, <laughs> in terms of the square footage. So clearly that was not the reason why the, they had a policy at these places of only two people at the most could move into an apartment. And a lot of these places have policies of no overnight guests. Really? And so if you have, even if you're in a more t traditional, like poly couple with outside partners, you're not allowed to have any overnight guests in the building. So mm. uh, again, I'm sure some of that is to protect seniors from like someone possibly coming into the building who might assault someone or rob someone or something. So I'm sure part of that is protective, but part of it is just so that they can discriminate against any family larger than two people. Hmm. So what are the ways that people are getting around that? Like, like, you know, are there ways that people are trying to avoid those systems altogether to as much as they can? Well, some of, some of the seniors I spoke to, uh, Polly elders that I interviewed said they had decided to invest their money in uh, remodeling their homes to be mm. disabled mm. accessible and uh, hiring caregivers to come into their home to take care of them. That's also a danger if you, you know, you're having to find people who are to provide care for you that are not going to be prejudiced against your uh, relationships and lifestyle. Uh, and that's, uh, there's a higher risk of that in general, just because so many caregivers are immigrants from other countries who are, in, in many cases, they do not see poly people in their country. They don't see even see queer people out of the closet in their countries because it's so dangerous mm. for <laughs> queer people and even more dangerous in many ways for poly people to be out of the closet. So uh, there, it's not that immigrants are more likely to be uh, inherently prejudiced. It's just because of where they come from. They don't, they have not had any interaction or exposure to either queer people uh, who are out of the closet or poly people who are out. So that's a danger as well. But at least then you have a lot more control over who's taking care of you and more control over your life and your environment if you are remodeling your house to make it accessible and 
you are in charge of who's going to come into your house and take care of you, as opposed to if you move into a, a building, a, a senior apartment building or assisted living, you know, you have no control over who they're hiring to take care of you and how they're going to feel right. about you. Right. Mm. I wanted to kind of pivot and move to a different topic of the book, a specific chapter that you titled The Curious Phenomenon of Successful Older Polymono Couples. That's an awesome title. <laughs> I, and can you tell us a little bit more about that? That's, I think that's one of the things that a lot of people discuss with us, but because you're putting in the, in the context of older polymono couples, what does that look like exactly? Can you tell us more about that? Yes, uh, it's uh, almost 100% uh, heterosexual women who have always considered themselves strictly monogamous, uh, partnering with uh, heterosexual men who are poly and are already married or live married to or living with someone else. Uh, and uh, these are women who, as I said, have always considered themselves monogamous. But a lot of the reasons that they needed or wanted a monogamous relationship when they were younger no longer exist. Hmm. And so the allure of polyamory is suddenly starting to uh, outweigh the negatives that they previously didn't like about it. For instance, uh, their children are grown, and so they're not looking for a father for their children. Uh, they are financially... Uh, independent, at least to the point of they've retired and they've got a pension or they've got Social Security or you know, they're not looking for a man to support them financially uh, or to even, you know, partner with financially. They're, they have already established themselves as being able to support themselves. Uh, and many of them have adult children and grandchildren, so they are they want to spend a lot of time with their families and they don't they're not really looking for marriage and a full-time partnership. And in fact, many of them uh, complained quite a bit about dating other guys who, not poly guys, who were mm -hmm. constantly complaining that they didn't have time for them, mm -hmm. that they were spending so much time with their kids and grandkids that they didn't have time to have a full-time relationship. Uh, and, you know, many of these women are saying, I, you know, I don't want a husband. Mm -hmm. I don't want to mm -hmm. uh, have to cook for a man. I don't want to have to you know, take care of them if they're sick. You know, I'm, I, I've been doing that all my life. Uh, and now I just mm -hmm. want to do my thing. Uh, and a few of them have said that they were pursuing college degrees and starting businesses and other things that they had never been able to do because they were so busy, uh, taking care of children and, uh, trying to make a living that now they're finally free to do that. But that if they settle down in a marriage, that that would in impair their ability to pursue whatever their dreams were sure. that they had deferred for all these years. So that's so interesting because I'm looking at that and I'm like, ooh, interesting. So how do we reverse engineer that? Because yeah, like Emily said, I think, you know, so many people all the time ask like, oh, I'm mono, mm -hmm. they're poly. Is it ever going to work? Can the mono poly or poly mono relationship ever work? Is it ever going to work? And, you know, there's so many opinions out there about, whether or not that's even viable. And it's so interesting to hear you share that, ooh, I've seen this be viable for people at this particular stage of life. And so I'm thinking like, ooh, outside of it just being these people are older, it sounds like there's something about the monogamous persons having different needs around monogamy, having a different sense of what fulfills them in life or what they're looking for out of the relationship that seems to foster that sort of pairing actually being successful. Am I tracking that correctly? Yes. One other key factor is that, uh, if you'll excuse me, just being blunt, uh, most of the men are dead by then. So <laughs> they, these women are saying, a lot of these women are saying, you know, my husband died 10 years ago or 15 years ago, or I've been divorced for 20 years and I can't get a date to save my life, mm -hmm. you know, because mm -hmm. there's so many wonderful, attractive, older women out there and the men have all died or the rest of them are married. <laughs> so, mm -hmm. uh, there's just, there's really not much of an option. Uh, it'd be very difficult to find a man who's free and available and is actually someone, you know, that you want to date, <laughs> want to get involved with. So mm -hmm. that's a, that's a big factor that a lot of these women stated that they tried for years to find someone that 
would be available for a monogamous relationship. They very reluctantly entered into a poly relationship and discovered that it was a lot better than they had expected. (laughs) Right. Hmm. Yeah. That's actually a great segue to the next question that we had here, which is that kind of like we were mentioning before, there's this assumption that, oh, as you get older, you've just got less energy or enthusiasm for dating. And that's not really something you'd want to do. And, and clearly that's not true, that there is a desire for that. And in thinking about that, I mean, retirement seems like a dream come true for dating. Like you've suddenly got all this time to date that she didn't before. And I think that's something a lot of people don't think about. But I was curious what you found working with your clients and in researching this book of how that potentially huge life change of going from working full time to suddenly being retired, how does that affect the landscape of dating and poly relationships and relationships in general? Well, in, in a lot of different ways, actually, you know, for some, it, it, it can go either way. For some people, when they're, after they retire, they have a lot of other things they'd rather do than have like five relationships. You know, <laughs> they have one or maybe two and they're like, you know, I want to travel around the world or I want to start a new business or I want to start a nonprofit to stop world hunger or something, you know, uh, or I want to, you know, pursue my dream of, of being, you know, having a successful band and going on a world tour or something. So, uh, some people just say, you know, I've had a great run with polyamory and I've had lots of great relationships and I have one or two really long-term committed stable relationships and I'm not really looking for any additional partners right now. I'd rather do other things. Other people have the opposite where they're like, well, gosh, I was working 40 or 50 or 60 hours a week, you know, all these years. And now suddenly, uh, you know, I have plenty of time to get eight hours sleep or take naps during the day. So uh, I, I have energy for additional relationships. So it, it really can go in either direction in terms of just what your priorities are and what you have time for. I also find that uh, poly elders in general, because they've had so much experience with having relationships, they have developed a, a much better skill set for time and energy management, as well as mm-hmm. just a better skill set for poly relationships, which, as you know, are very uh, labor-intensive, <laughs> really require time, energy, and really a very specific skill set that a lot of people spend years or even decades developing. And, you know, either by the time you're 55, 60, 65, or 70, either you've got that skill set or you might as well give up. And plenty of people do. Oh, plenty of people don't ever develop that skill set, <laughs> and they just go, God, I suck at polyamory. I give up. I'm quitting. I've seen that well so okay so that comes down then to the ultimate question looking at polyamorous folks like do do you think on average older polyamorous folks are just better at it than the younger folks even if we're accounting for same number of years of experience or things like that uh i guess i would say yes they definitely are better at it but it is because they have more years of experience uh and because they've really put the time and effort into acquiring that skill set. I think a lot of younger people just figure, well, if, if this relationship doesn't work out, I'll just go out and get another relationship. I mean, I'm not sure they're thinking that consciously, but I've certainly seen plenty of my clients who I've, you know, kind of have to slap them around in the therapy chair and say, you know, keep making the same mistakes. You're not really learning the skills you need. And you've got to stop hurting people by doing this or you've got to learn how to do this right. But I, I think there is that unfortunate tendency amongst us. I'd say it's a small percentage, but there is definitely a small but significant minority of poly folks who just seem to have this, there's so many fish in the sea attitude and that they can keep doing everything wrong and somehow they're eventually going to succeed or find some a number of people that are willing to put up with their bad habits and bad behavior. So I think most people, if they're still polyamorous when they're older, they have learned how to do it right. I feel like even outside of the skill set that one needs to be polyamorous, as we age, at least this is for me, I think probably I've heard this from the two of you as well, Jason Dedeker, but we get more comfortable with ourselves And a lot of the hangups that we have when we're younger tend to sort of start fading away. And it seems like perhaps 
polyamorous elders also have that like things like jealousy or some of the worries or uh, cares that you may have had when you were younger just aren't as much of an issue when you're older as well. So I'd like to think and, and correct me if I'm wrong that those types of things also make dating a little bit easier as you as you age or just it, perhaps you you don't worry about certain things as much as you once did. I think that's very true. And I think, you know, as as people get older, you know, you know that you're not, you know that you're not that uh, gorgeous. <laughs> you know, <laughs> you've got gray hair and you're, you know, you're getting saggy and dumpy and, you know, you're just not trying to live up mm. to some ridiculous uh, mm. kind of ideal that we never, you know, I certainly never it's hard to could achieve, have fulfilled sure. even when I was 20. Yeah, yeah so I right. think in terms yeah. of just the physical thing of always thinking, oh, some other person is going to come along who's sexier than me and and is a better lover than me, and so my partner's going to dump me for them. I think you just get over that at a certain point and think, you know, they've been in this relationship with me for you know, 45 years. They're, they're not probably going anywhere just because somebody cuter comes along. <laughs> yeah that makes a lot of sense and it just like emily was saying that we've just noticed so much change over the years that we've been doing this i think partly in terms of the comfort of being polyamorous and just getting used to it so that there's kind of less unlearning to do as we've done it longer and it just becomes easier and easier you know and, and I, I always try to tell that to people who are just starting out or in their first year or two of that, I know this is a lot of work right now, or it can feel that way, a lot of personal work, but it does get better. You do mm -hmm. get used to it. And so what I'm curious to ask you about is with older people who are becoming polyamorous later in life, like you mentioned a little bit about those women who, you know, meet a man who's already married, who's polyamorous. But I imagine there's also some who just later in life go, huh, this may be something I never let myself do. And maybe I could explore now. And Specifically, what I'm curious about is I notice when people first transition from being just monogamy by default to being polyamorous, there's kind of this, this, it's almost like they become a teenager again when they first started dating, where it's like uh -huh. everything is super intense. All the feelings are up at 11. All the heartbreaks are the worst in the world. All the new relationships are the best thing in the world. And we're all going to live together on a farm and it's going to be amazing. There's kind of that extreme, just like we had when we're, you know, 15, 16 of like, oh my gosh, this is the love of my life. Cause you just <laughs> n don't have anything to compare it to. And so I'm curious if you see that or if, you know, how does that work out for people who find polyamory later in life? Well, aside from the women that I was describing that have always been monogamous and then decide to try a poly relationship, I see, aside from that group, I see very people becoming polyamorous for the first time in their old age. Uh, I do see a lot of married couples who were polyamorous or were so-called swingers or, you know, something like that when they were in their 20s and 30s, but they quit for some period of time while they were raising kids and had such uh, heavy responsibilities with careers and families that they didn't really have the time or energy for it. Or because at, at, at that time, when that group was in their 20s and 30s, was in the 70s and 80s, when, uh, you know, you could lose your jobs, or lose your children, lose custody of your children for being polyamorous. A lot of these folks, when they really needed to focus on careers and raising kids, they stopped being polyamorous or swingers or whatever whatever flavor of non-monogamy they were doing at the time uh, and then uh now that the kids are grown and, and you know a lot of them are retired now they don't feel like there's any real danger you know except possibly their adult children not letting them see their grandchildren because they're into this weird lifestyle but um you know they're not going to lose their kids they're not going to lose their jobs and so they're and they have more time and energy so they're going to try it again yeah, that I see that a lot. So yeah. they're not they're not doing the uh, highs and lows kind of thing that you described, or right. the intensity is not the same because right. they've done it before. And a lot of them actually were 
quote, swingers, where they went to swing parties just because the polyamorous community was, there wasn't, the term polyamory hadn't been invented yet when they were in their 20s and 30s. And a consensual non-monogamy as a lifestyle was, uh, was uh, not very well known at the time. Most people were very closeted. So, uh, a lot of them were active in the swing community just because that was the only organized non-monogamous uh, lifestyle out there that was easy to find right. and easy to participate right. in. Right. That makes sense. So in the second half of this episode, we want to get into some things about the developmental tasks of aging, some legal concerns about aging that honestly apply to those of us who are not as old as well. Uh, and so they're good things to think about. But first, we're going to take a quick break to talk about some ways that you can support this show to help us to keep bringing this information to everyone out there for free. So please take a moment, listen to them. If any seem interesting to you, go check them out because it does directly help support this show. For a long time now, we've been fans of AdamandEve.com for getting sex toys or lingerie or accessories, things like that. It's just a fantastic resource with a huge selection and now, not only do we have a fantastic offer, but we also have a promo code that will work on adammail.com and evestoys.com, which are their site specifically for LGBTQ audiences. And our code is fantastic. It's 50% off of almost any item in the store and free discreet shipping when you use our code MULTI. Yes, we love adamandeve.com and have for years. They are our oldest and longest sponsor, and they just keep on giving great gifts to us and to our listeners. You can bring more pleasure and satisfaction into your bedroom by going to adamandeve.com, adammail.com, or evestoys.com and select any one item. It can be, you know, an adventurous new toy or anything you desire, something fun, something sexy, whatever sounds good. So just enter offer code MULTI at checkout and you'll get 50% off almost any item plus free shipping. That's MULTI, M-U-L-T-I at adamandeve.com, adammail.com or evestoys.com. This is an exclusive offer that is specific to this podcast and it's better than any offer that is currently available on their site. So again, use code MULTI to get you not just the 50% discount, but also the 100% free shipping. Code M-U-L-T-I. And we're back. So as Jace discussed earlier, the last section of your book is titled Polyamory and the Developmental Tasks of Aging. And there is some research on developmental tasks in old age, and it's a really fascinating and kind of new topic. But we're curious about how polyamory fits into that. So for our listeners, what does that even mean? And can you talk a little bit more about that and, and how polyamory does fit into this? specific topics. Yeah, you know, sociologists and philosophers, psychologists, all that whole gang has talked for, you know, hundreds of years about the developmental tasks of life at different developmental stages of life. You know, when you're an, an infant, you're learning to walk. And, you know, when you're in your 20s, you're pursuing your... uh differentiating from your parents and establishing your own life and deciding on, you know, careers and, you know, trying to find a mate and all of those things. Uh, that the uh, sociologists and all of those folks have not been nearly as, uh, had as much consensus on the developmental tasks of aging, just because until a hundred years ago, you know, old age was kind of a rare thing. So the fact that people are living to be a hundred or 80 or 90 now, uh, you know, is kind of a new thing. So, uh, they, there's not as much agreement on what those tasks are as on the other, uh, stages of life, but generally, uh, they're considered things like life review, like where you are trying to make sense of your life and figure out, you know, what you've done and what you want to do, what do you have, what time you have left, what you want to do with it. Uh, and a lot of that life review involves looking at the things you are proud of, the things you see as accomplishments, uh, looking as well as looking at any regrets that you have. And, um, my experience is that poly people seem to have a lot less regret than other people because they have just 
kind of gone for it and done whatever they wanted. Uh, you know, uh, people who are not poly have more of a tendency to say, well, I, you know, I was, too, I cared too much about what other people thought of me and I did what society expected of me rather than what I actually wanted to do. And, um, I didn't spend enough time with my family and loved ones. I spent too much time at work. Uh, whereas poly people tend to feel like they really did pursue the things they wanted to do in life and they didn't let, uh, prejudices from society hold them back. Uh, however, almost every poly person of, you know, my age or older that I talked to, uh, had at least some regrets about uh, if you excuse my language, not knowing what the fuck they were doing <laughs> when they first started being polyamorous because... Uh, oh, I, I have that regret. Oh, I've got tons of those oh, regrets okay. already, yeah. Okay, we already have that under our belts, it's, so that tracks. Yeah, it's okay, it's not just us old people. Okay, no. well, I haven't heard that as much from younger people. I haven't heard it partly just at all from younger people. It, they just uh, haven't admitted to themselves that that is the case yet, perhaps. Yeah, you gotta be, you gotta well, be several years in before you go. Oh uh, no! Uh, yeah, <laughs> I, I was really yeah. <laughs> well, I see. Yeah, and I think for a lot of people of my age or older, because that we did not have any resources, couldn't find a therapist that could give you a clue how to be ethically non-monogamous could not find any books or articles you know when we were younger the internet didn't exist as hard as it is for youngsters like you to imagine that <laughs> the uh, internet didn't exist until you know i was in my late 40s so for people of my age you know it just there was no such thing as like looking it up on google or you know f uh, taking a, an online class or finding websites that had information so uh and I've talked to many people who went to many therapists who just pathologized them for being mm. polyamorous and, and told them not to. <laughs> so and that was about as far as they got. So, uh, I think that is the main regret that I hear from poly people that they have had at least one kind of disastrous poly relationship at some point in their past, usually in the 1970s, <laughs> that where they really, you know, just either were not they didn't pick the right person mm. to be in a relationship with, or they themselves were not the right person mm. for really being able to yeah. be polyamorous and really do it in a way that was uh, ethical and healthy and was really going to make other people happy. Mm. Right. Yeah. yeah. So how do we extrapolate that? Because I, I do love talking to people of all age groups about their regrets in life. I think this is a really fascinating topic and it's a very rich topic so hearing that about oh i just didn't know what i was doing and then also the three of us being like gosh we all really regret that we didn't know what we were doing i guess i wonder what what we hope people extrapolate from that well i guess that's why we made a freaking podcast yeah. was to help prevent <laughs> I, okay i answered my own question whatever it's fine we can move on <laughs> well it's certainly the reason the key reason that i wrote the books that i wrote because there are lots of yes. people that don't live in my area, the San Francisco Bay Area, where, you know, you know, can't throw a rock without hitting a poly yeah. person or a poly therapist or a poly podcast mm -hmm. or a poly you know, book or article or website or something. So uh, a lot of people do not live in areas where they have access to this information. So, if you're, you know, your podcast is extremely valuable. As, as well as all the other resources that now exist on the internet and that people can, you know, get, you know, video therapy and phone therapy, you know, from therapists that don't live in their area. Right. Yeah. yeah. Maybe, maybe the lesson to take away, Dedeker, is just to remind people and ourselves to take advantage of those resources to try to make fewer mistakes. It, it reminds me of one of my favorite quotes that I just looked up right now because I didn't even know who it was by. Apparently it's by Otto von Bismarck, oh. a German Otto author. Von Bismarck. Well, uh, Otto. But the, the <laughs> English version of it is, only a fool learns from his own mistakes. The wise man learns from the mistakes of others. So... Oh. <laughs> That's a great one. I love it. So we're here to share our mistakes. Heard that. So you can you learn yes. from those. All of yeah. our mistakes. Yeah. <laughs> yes, I, I always tell... 
my clients, yes, learn from my mistakes and the mistakes from uh, of others so you can go out and make new and very creative mistakes of your own. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> there you go. And then you can make your own podcast or write your own book. <laughs> that hopefully mistakes that won't be as disastrous. I hope we can avoid the really disastrous ones. Yeah. Right. Or as my sister likes to say, take my advice, I'm not using it. <laughs> That's <laughs> good. That's like really that good. That's good. <laughs> in her case it's accurate so. um, that's amazing uh so i want to change gears again a little bit and this one so a few episodes back we did an episode with lawyer melissa hall and in that episode we talked a fair amount about things like wills and power of attorney and kind of treating death in a more matter-of-fact way this is also something that you discuss in this book and i was just curious um, Kind of what were some of your biggest takeaways from talking to people and working with people about that? Well, just the, the biggest takeaway is just how so many people do not write their wills and then mm. disaster happens and mm. it's too late. And uh, this is certainly, I've certainly seen it with people who are not public, but it, it usually doesn't have nearly as disastrous consequences for them because usually there are blood relatives or they're legally married to someone uh, or they have children that are going to inherit or children that will have uh, some control over the estate. Uh, whereas with poly people, almost always the people you're involved with, you are not legally connected with in any way unless you write up forms and write up documents such as a will and uh, in order to make sure that whatever you want to happen is actually going to happen. And, you know, with a will, you may say, well, I don't care, I'll be dead. But uh, some of these other uh, documents are way more important in terms of while you're still alive, like a durable power of attorney for financial matters and a directive to position to, you know, to tell your doctor what you want to happen if you're in a coma, uh, you know, who you want to make decisions for you and what medical treatments you do and don't want you know these are important questions for anyone of any age but for older people it, it's a lot more likely that sometime in the near future you're going to need these documents whereas people of your age could probably put it off for a while but <laughs> you never know we probably no, should no like no was, i'm yeah. on a i'm on a huge yeah. soapbox about this kathy i've already got mine yep. Squared away. Well, I need to update mine because yeah, I had a breakup and, you know, so I need to do some of that. But no, I'm, I'm on a big soapbox about that because I think another factor is, um, you know, that if you don't have something in place, that often that means the state mm. gets involved and the state's going to default to whoever your blood relatives are. And your blood relatives may be those people who are like, I don't want any of your polycule at the funeral, <laughs> right? Or I don't, it's it's not even a matter of where your money and your possessions go. It's, or could be someone who's like, we're not going to dress you for the funeral in what your gender is, right? We're going to dress you in the gender that I think that you are, right? And so, so it's like, yes, I know you're going to be dead. And so in theory, you're not going to care. But but it's like if you still want your sense of your values, and that's not only your values about who you are, but also who your family is to continue on into the future, like really highly recommend people get on top of that. So there, yeah. Thank that's you my, for the reminder. <laughs> <laughs> for me too. Do it. Yeah, I, I, well, yeah, me yeah. too. Yeah. I, I had a previous career for nearly 20 years as an intensive care unit nurse. And so I saw a lot of people in the ICU having a lot of medical things done to them that they would never have wanted and that if they had any idea that mm. this was going to happen, would have written something, uh, a directive to physicians to tell th their doctor and their loved ones what they wanted. And I also saw in those days uh, queer people and their partners being uh ref just to ha come in and see them in the hospital and their partners not being allowed to make decisions about their medical care and instead, you know, the estranged, you know, whacked out, born-again Christian parents or siblings from right. Kansas yeah. showing up and making those decisions, yeah. literally decisions over life and death, whether that person is going to be allowed to go home and die with dignity rather than be uh, forced to it'll be in the hospital and be intubated and be on a ventilator and all those horrible things. So, you know, those things can happen whether you're young or old, but it, it, the likelihood 
increases dramatically <laughs> as you age. And especially if, uh, like me, you've been living with two partners for decades who you're, and you're not married to either one of them legally, uh, you need those documents in place. And, uh, I've mentioned in the book that, uh, a number of years ago, one of my partners had to have brain surgery and, uh, for a brain tumor. And, uh, I was being barred from coming into the ICU to see my, my partner. Gosh. I literally had to pull out the, uh, the, uh, directive to physician and the durable power of attorney saying mm. that I was the person that is in charge of these medical decisions rather yeah. than, uh, his parents and or siblings who were all still living at that time. Right. Well, I'm going to pivot us from death into sex, actually. <laughs> oh, what a great so, idea. <laughs> Much more exciting of a topic in my mind. Yeah. Well, I think, again, there's this cultural narrative that as you get older, at some point, you just stop being a sexual being. You know, there's at some point where it's just the sex switch just switches off in your brain and... And that's where we get this assumption that old people just don't have sex. And therefore, if old people don't have sex, how, like, who would be interested in polyamory? Because that's clearly all that polyamory is about, right? Um, so I guess I'm, I'm wondering, I mean, I'm assuming that this must be part of some of the pushback or lack of interest from certain places that you get about this polyamorous elders book, right? There's this assumption of like, well, there's no sex involved. It must not be that interesting. There must not be that many older people who are actually interested in this. So why do we care? Yeah, I think that, uh, I mean, I think a lot of people think of the ideas of old people having sex as being sort of pathetic or that they just don't want to think about it. Uh, and, and as you, as you've said, they seem to think that sex is all that polyamory is about. Uh, so, uh, the fact is that there are some people that that sex switch does switch off in their brain as they get older, but it's a small, you know, very small percentage. Uh, most of us continue to be sexual beings and want some form of sexual expression uh, throughout our lifespan. Uh, it, it for for many older people, sex becomes less important than it was uh, when we were younger, uh, and a, a number of people have said things to me like, "Well." You know, I've been having sex for 60 years with lots of people. And so, you know, been there, done that. And like, I haven't missed a thing. Mm. <laughs> you know, I haven't missed out on it. So if I'm only having sex with one or two people now, like, so what? You know, <laughs> I've had all those opportunities and had wonderful, you know, hot love affairs and you know, delightful liaisons. And, you know, I, I, I'm not feeling like I have to keep finding all these new partners. It's just not uh, my priority right now. So uh, I think that's certainly true of some people with other things like travel, you know, people who've traveled around the world and gone to 85 countries, they may say, I think I don't need to travel anymore (laughs) now that I'm old. So to me, it's that's part of it. But uh, I think certainly for a lot of women, uh, after menopause, their sex drive decreases, their interested sex decreases. It doesn't mean they don't want sex anymore. They just may not be, you know, deranged sex maniacs like me. <laughs> they may be less sexual than they were, but they are just still want and like sex. Uh, sex changes a lot, however, uh, because of menopause for women. It changes a lot in terms of what kind of sex we may enjoy more or less. Uh, it changes for men in terms of their ability to maintain erections and for for men and women and probably all genders it you know the ability to have orgasm changes and the way you have orgasm changes all of those things change and that doesn't have to be a bad thing it can be just an opportunity to be more creative sexually uh, and I, I observed a really interesting uh with a lot of couples that have been together for 40 or 50 years that when they have new partners, they discover that they're not expecting that kind of crazy wild sex you maybe have when you're younger because hmm. you're both you're if you have a new partner at age 60, for instance, you just are both you and the partner are both understanding that not going to be able to have sex exactly the same hmm. way as you did 40 years ago. But if you're with the same person for all those years, 
you somehow think you should be able to keep doing exactly what you've been doing since you were 21. Huh. And so some of these couples, a lot of them have said to me, well, gosh, you know, having these other newer partners at, in our old age has really helped us redefine our own sex life and change our expectations instead of being kind of disappointed that we can't, you know, have intercourse for three hours like we used to. <laughs> <laughs> We're just thrilled we could have it at all, you know, or we're thrilled we can do certain sexual activities at all, which rather than doing them in exactly the same way and for the same amount of time and with the same frequency as we used. Yeah, this also brings me back to one of the topics that we mentioned at the beginning of this episode about, uh, you know, retirement communities and elder care communities, things like that, with some discrimination against polyamorous people. Because I feel like just in the last few years, I've, you know, we've heard several articles about how much sex there is in retirement homes because people are like, well, I can't get pregnant anymore. And what else do I have to do? Like, cool. We're just hooking up, having sex all the time. And, <laughs> and while maybe some people are like, yikes, I don't want to think about that or imagine that, but we're kind of we're like, okay, cool. That's, that's great. They're doing that. But then when it's in the context of polyamory, it's like, ew, what are you doing? Don't do that. So I guess it's just, just the fact that we so rarely even talk about or think about sex when we're older, I think just leads to a lot of weird inconsistencies in the way that we react to these things kind of culturally. It reminds me of a story that I read a while ago that it was, there was this coalition of nurses who were actually kind of trying to push for more sexual health care and sex education in like senior centers or assisted living centers or things like that. And of course, they got a lot of pushback on that and that they shared about like giving a presentation at a convention or something. And they asked their audience, who are all people who like facilitated these kind of centers or administrators or things like that. They asked their audience like, okay, who of you know that you know, there's sex going on in your senior center, in your assisted living center or whatever. And they said the only people who are actually honest were like the three Catholic nuns in the front who ran a Catholic center. But they're the ones like, oh, yeah, no, we know what sex is going Uh on. (laughs) Um, They had to reiterate, like, I know you think that it's not, but Mm. it is. And like, this is also a part of healthcare that we're giving to people is is sexual healthcare as well. So, yeah, that is interesting. I hope that that shifts and changes over time. Well, I'd like to just add to that, that uh, a number of people that I spoke to who had moved into assisted living uh, apartments were distraught about the fact that apparently they didn't tell them before they moved in there that they're not allowed to lock the door of oh, their apartment. Oh. And so oh, one gosh. person was right. actually at, you know, lobbying and trying to change that policy. How can you have sex and have or even affection and private when you don't have privacy. And, you know, there is hmm. obviously some good reason for that policy is that, you know, so, someone might fall and be injured and they do need to get in that apartment to help them. But, you know, the, uh, you know, the staff has a, a key to the door right, of yeah. the apartment. So if you really needed to, uh, you know, someone who needed help, they could get in in an emergency. So, you know, that really, to me, is, is something that is just clearly you're saying to your residents, you know, you're not allowed to have any privacy, which is a, a basic necessity for sex and even like cuddling or affection. You feel like you need to feel like you're having privacy. Yeah. Right. So we all know that getting older is challenging. And I think there's a cultural narrative that's fed to us, especially women that aging is not a thing that we should be doing we should try to stave it off as long as possible and do things to make ourselves appear and act younger but i think we've talked today about a lot of the reasons why aging can be a beautiful good thing that actually kind of elevates our life and i'm curious just from this project of doing this book and and doing the research, what are some of the benefits that you found of aging and specifically how it relates to polyamory and relationships? I know we've talked about some of them, but if there are any additional ones that you can add. <laughs> well, uh, the there are two things that I would say are the biggest benefits. One is that most people have gotten over their jealousy and their discomfort with their partners having other partners, mostly because the person 
or persons that are in your partner's life, they've been around and those relationships have stood the, the test of time. And you, at a certain point, you just realize that person is good for my partner. That relationship is working well for them. And they, they're part of the family, you know, so, uh, I'm just going to get over whatever, you know, jealousy I may have had. Uh, it naturally seems to disappear over time. Uh, and that other person or the other people that are in your partner's life also have proved to be a boom to the family in that they have shown up at times of crisis when you're sick or when you're going through a crisis. They have shown up for you as well as your partner that they're in a relationship with. So you are, you have formed a relationship with that person uh, and, and uh, they, they really have something to really benefit. They've really benefited you as well as benefited your relationship with your, with your spouse. Uh, but they're also, is strength in numbers in terms of when, when caregiving is needed, if your partner or you gets, get, become disabled and need some additional caregiving. And so many, uh, monogamous couples that I've seen, the woman is usually stuck with taking care of the disabled husband who is very much likely to die, get sick and die before her. And so she's the one that ends up in the caregiving role. Then when he dies, there's no one left to take care of her. <laughs> Whereas it, I've seen a number of women who are in situations where the, they and their husband, other partner took care of the husband or male partner while he was sick and dying. And then they still had each other, even if they were not in a, a sexual or, you know, romantic relationship, they had each other. They, they were not alone. And for so many widows, it's just horrible. The husband dies, suddenly you're alone 24-7. You are, you know, when you're used to living with someone all those years, you're used to having meals together, you're used to, you know, having someone that you get up with and that you spend the time with, and suddenly you're all alone. Whereas if you have another spouse or another, a metamor who's been either living with you all the time or part of the time, then still have a family member that's really there for you and you are also you have that emotional support in grieving because you're grieving the same husband you're both grieving the same person mm-hmm. and who else could ever know better than that person what you're going through wow yeah. i've unfortunately yeah. seen the opposite where there's a growing number of women who are what I describe as doubly widowed, where they've had two male partners mm. for several decades and both have died. And mm. that is really rough. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. And uh, that's a group I am expecting to join mm. <laughs> at some point in the next right. 20 years that I'm expecting to become doubly widowed. It's just a reality that most of most women will outlive not only one husband, but two. Mom. So I think you're saying just don't be in a relationship with anybody. <laughs> just, just, just don't open your heart. No. no, no, no. I'm saying pick at least one woman there because they're likely you might okay. they might outli- you might outlive them. I they mean, they might outlive you. you. Right. My partner definitely says that. Like, I, you know what? I'm going to die before you, and I'm really glad about that. I'm like, wow. Okay, <laughs> jeez. <I know. laughs> That didn't happen in, in at least on my mm-hmm. mom's side of the family. You know, I had the opposite. Yeah, same on so. my mom's side of the family, actually. My grandma died first. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Well, long with but, that. Uh, well, okay. But, but I think to tie this together, I do think it is interesting that I think a recurring theme here is as you're getting older, we're moving maybe even more and more towards this kind of intentional relationship crafting, right? Where it's a little bit less about, I'm in my 20s and you're hot. Let's do this thing. Let's try it. Why not? Maybe I don't spend a ton of time thinking about, do I want to be with you for another 40 years? Or do I want you taking care of me while I'm sick? And that as we get older, we need to think about those things a little bit more frequently. You know, I feel like honestly, even now in my 30s, you know, when I'm thinking about relationship, I'm I'm trying to think about not just like right now, but think about 
do I want this person sort of in the inner circle? Do I want this person to be part of that safety in numbers, right? Um, yeah, so I think that's definitely something that I think a lot of us could incorporate in our partner selection and in the way that we build our relationships. But as always, Kathy, this has been just like such a wonderful conversation. And can you share with our listeners where they can find more of your work and also where they can get this book or one of the 6,000 other books that you have written? (laughs) Well, first of all, I just have to say, Nedeker, don't don't get so serious about this. You know, don't pass up those beautiful love affairs just because they're not someone that you're going to spend the rest of your life with. (laughs) That's fair. That does tend to be my struggle, I will say. Tanaker's very pragmatic, if you haven't noticed. (laughs) But I mean, that's part of what, to me, that's part of what's so fantastic about any kind of consensual non-monogamy. You can have one or two or even three spouses that you're going to live with for the rest of your life. And you also get to have these you know, beautiful, you know, summer romances and things like that. So don't, don't pass those up or else you're going okay. to be, when you're in that life review mm. in developmental stage of aging, really you're going to be regretting the one that got mm. away or the one that you passed up. So anyway, sorry, that's just. Okay. So Kathy's prescription, more love affairs. Oh, <laughs> nice. okay. yeah. right. Not more, right. not more than you can handle, but you know, <laughs> we've seen a lot of poly people do that kid in the candy store thing where they right. take on too much and then they can't quite. Well, that doesn't tend to be my issue these days. It does tend to be the more hyper pragmatic, uh-huh. little yeah. too serious, a little too reserved. So I could use a little bit more of a swing in the other <laughs> okay, good. Glad to hear that. Uh, so, uh, yeah, you asked about the book or where to get it. Uh, this book is uh, published by Rauman and Littlefield, which is kind of scary because they're kind of an actual real publisher, which I've never had a book published before. <laughs> and, you know, they actually are planning on using it in in some you know, grad school classes Great. for psychologists and things. Awesome. So, but, you know, don't let that dissuade you from reading the book because it's actually very funny and very fun. So it's not scholarly in any Yeah, it's very, very shape, approachable, I will say. Way, shape, or form. I mean, yeah, I just wouldn't want to, you know, to be what you scare do. you off of it. Cause, yeah, yeah I, I can't. I mean, I, I wouldn't be capable of writing that kind of book anyway. So because uh, I don't have any academic credentials whatsoever. But uh, you can't get it through uh, uh, Raman and Littlefield. You can also get it uh IndieBound and bookshop.com. IndieBound dot IndieBound is dot org and bookshops.com. Whatever you do, please don't buy it on Amazon because they're evil incarnate and uh we don't I don't believe in hell or Satan but... any more money. <laughs> <laughs> There's plenty yeah. of other good <laughs> options that will send money to right. people much yeah. more deserving. And uh, at some point in the near future, you can probably get it from me on my website, kathylabriola.com. I, I'm not certain how soon that will be, that when they're going to be able to send me a few boxes of them. So right. to sell you directly if you want to do that. Yeah. And I know this you is... You can buy my other three books on my website if you mm. feel like it, lab- kathylabriola.com. I was just going to say, it's it's unfortunate that this is a different publisher than the others because like a box set, like the Kathy Labriola mm-hmm. box yeah. set with all of those would be would be a real nice little Ooh, gift. Yeah, it's time. <laughs> if Rowan Littlefield really, really like really want to get some money off go. of this, they got to do, yeah, the special edition, the special ca- <laughs> Kathy Labriola the, box the hard, set. Oh, hardcover, yeah. you know, nice versions of all those. Because we, we recommend your books a lot, Kathy. Mm-hmm. We really appreciate oh, thank you. the work that you do for mm-hmm. this community and, and all of the, the resources that you put out there. So we're so glad to have you I'm, here. Thank you. I'm currently writing a, a second edition to Love in Abundance. Because oh, nice. there's nothing wrong with that book. There's nothing out of date in the book except the fact that a number of words have been invented since yeah. then uh, yeah. that yes. could not have appeared in the book, such as non-binary. Mm-hmm. That was a term that wasn't around. I get a lot of uh, angry emails from people that mm. are upset that that book, since it was written in 2008, makes it sound like there are only two genders in the world. And I, I didn't believe that then, and of course don't believe that now, but there were some terms that weren't invented and you know relationship anarchy mm. has not been invented right. i get a lot of angry emails about that too like why i haven't talked about that in the book <laughs> but i think it's usually from young people who uh, don't, don't realize that those terms were recently invented so we're also anticipating getting those angry emails and wanting people to at least have a sense of perspective of like 
Yes, we this know. This is Dedeker's this, this, primer, you know, everyone. The people who've been doing that this. that specific episode, yes. Yes. Yeah. Basically, yeah. What I'm saying is, like, don't send us angry emails just because people didn't use the 100% correct term. So I'm glad you're not the only one who's yeah, run into that, Kathy. All right. Well, thank you so much, Kathy. And again, for everyone out there, the book is called Polyamorous Elders Aging in Open Relationships. So you can just look that up and, and buy it from anywhere but Amazon, as Kathy said. We also have a question of the week for you out there that will be on our Instagram stories. And we wanted to t turn this a little bit on its head from the normal narrative. And that is, what are you looking forward to about getting older? We would love to hear love what ideas you have, what things come to mind, especially after listening to this episode. Also, if you want to talk about this episode more, the best place to share your thoughts with other listeners is in the episode discussion channel in our Discord server or you can post in our private Facebook group. You can get access to these groups and join our exclusive community by going to patreon.com slash multiamory. In addition, you can share with us publicly on Twitter, Facebook, or Instagram. Multiamory is created and produced by Dedeker Winston, Emily Matlack, and me, Jace Lindgren. Our episodes are edited by Mauricio Balvanera. Our production assistants are Rachel Shenowark and Carson Collins. Our theme song is Forms I Know I Did by Josh and Anand from the Fractal Cave EP. The full transcript is available on this episode's page on multiamory.com.